recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada, a Get a Grip management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Financially supported by the good folks at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, this is Restoring Darkness podcast. This episode of Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma. If you're serious about contributing to the reduction of light pollution, go to evluma.com, hover over products, and click on Dark Sky Friendly Lighting. Both the Omnimax and Ariamax lights are International Dark Sky Association certified. The warmer color temperatures of the Omnimax reduce the more easily scattered blue wavelengths, which contribute to glare and sky glow. With Ariamax lights, you get full cutoff, which also means no uplight and a significantly reduced contribution to sky glow. And all of Avluma's outdoor lighting product lines come with dimmable drivers for even more control. If your customer is looking for dark sky friendly fixtures with energy savings while still meeting the demands of decorative lighting, look no further than Evluma. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Zoe Randall. Dr. Randall is a senior surveys officer for the UK-based charity Butterfly Conservation one of the largest insect conservation organizations in the world. Dr. Randall coordinates the National Moth Recording Scheme and the the Butterflies for the New Millennium Recording Scheme for Butterfly Conservation. These data sets hold in excess of 55 million moth and butterfly sightings submitted by over 15,000 volunteer moth and butterfly recorders, or what we call citizen scientists. These data inform all of butterfly conservation's work from species distribution trends, targeted conservation action on the ground, public engagement and policy. In 2019, Butterfly Conservation published the Atlas of Britain and Ireland's Larger Moths, the first ever atlas um, landmark publication, oh sorry, first ever atlas covering all larger moths in Britain and Ireland, the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands. This landmark publication charts the fortunes of the moths. The data are also used by academics and researchers to better understand the patterns of change in moth and butterflies. The impact of artificial light at night as a driver for moth declines is is a growing area of research. Dr. Randall is also the ecological lead for Butterfly Conservation's Big Butterfly Count, an annual UK citizen, citizen science survey which helps to assess the health of our environment and connect people to nature. Prior to working for butterfly conservation, she was a field ecologist working in a range of different habitats, counting and measuring a variety of different plants and animals for scientific research. In her spare time, she rides her horse, does photography and star and moon gazing like myself. And writing, she writes to try to make the world make sense. You know, that's a good idea. Her social media handles and all that stuff will be on the Restoring Darkness website. Dr. Randall, I'm so glad you've joined us today. Oh, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be invited. You know, I I have to say this right off the top. Um, I find that we only want to save the cute animals. Um, you know, the little baby turtles, the butterflies, and, you know, crickets and beetles and moths tend to be ignored. But it seems that, you know, your research is, is pointing to these moths. And while, you know, I don't really like moths. I kind of find them gross. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I, I think that these things like bats and moths, they're kind of signals. They tell us more. Why moths and why are they, why, are, why should we care? Why are moths so important to our ecosystem? Moths, you know, like you say, moths have, um, you know, they are sort of seen as the, the poor relations to the butterflies. But actually, when you look at butterflies and moths as a whole group, you've got the micro moths, which are the smaller moths. You've got the butterflies. And then you've got the macro moths, which are the larger moths. So in effect, butterflies are really just moths. In the UK, we've got 56 resident species of butterfly. And you compare that to two and a half thousand species of moths. Mm. And I think the reason why people don't like moths is because they are on the whole nocturnal. There's a whole array of them that are day flying as well. And some of them are really, really pretty. And people get in touch with us and say, oh, I've seen this butterfly. What is it? You know, I can't find it in my books or online. And it's like, well, that's because it's a scarlet tiger moth. And it's actually mm. dispels all the myths. It flies by day and it's absolutely beautiful. <clears throat> so I think, yeah, people don't see moths because they're flying at night. And as human beings, I think we've got an inherent sort of fear of the dark as well. Mm. But they're really important <clears throat> species because they are really important food for bats and birds. In the UK, <clears throat> sorry, I've got this frog <clears throat> in my throat, these animals. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you've you know you've got two and a half thousand species, and in the UK people have been studying moths for over three hundred years. You know mm. they used to collect them and pin them, but now people just run a moth trap and count them and write them down in their books and send the data in. Um, but they blue tit chicks eat an estimated thirty five billion moth caterpillars a year in the UK mm. in Britain alone, and that's based on on each pair of of blue tits only having one clutch of eggs so massively important in the food chains for bats as well many bats eat, eat moths um and um and hedgehogs everyone loves a hedgehog hedgehogs are another creature in the uk that are declining and you know and hedgehog caterpillars have been found to be a really important food source for um for hedgehogs too um they're also likened to the canary in the coal mine because they've got short life cycles and so they're indicator species they give us a handle on mm. what's happening to other creatures and what's happening in in the environment and again you know ecosystem services it's all the rage these days in the uk um and across the globe, you know, ecosystem services, there's a growing body of evidence showing that moths are the bees of the nighttime. You know, they're really, really important mm. in, in pollinating plants and crops. So um, and it's the little things that rule the world. And without them, you know, where would we be? <laughs> you know, I don't know where we would be, you know, and that's I think that's an, an unknown. Uh, before I, I got a, I've made a list of questions here, but before I ask, is the distinction between a butterfly and a moth purely aesthetic? Like is it, or is there actually a uh, zoological difference between moths and butterflies? It's pretty much an artificial divide. I mean, there's a couple of things. You know, people say that um, butterflies have got clubbed antennae. Well, that's not entirely true because some of the moths have got, you know, antennae that are a bit clubbed. Um, you know, they say that moths fly at night, butterflies fly at day. Well, there's more day flying moths in the UK than there are butterflies. Um, there is one little thing that that is makes the difference and that is that moths have a little hook 
on their wings which join the forewing and the hindwing and it's called a frenulum. Be very careful when you Google that phrase and put the word moth in front because otherwise you get all sorts of things pop up. Um, so that's <laughs> mainly the only detail is this is this the frenulum on on the wings. Um, mm. But pretty much they're they're pretty much the same thing. You mentioned that humans have a fear of the dark. I, I, I'm not sure that we naturally fear the dark. I think it's more of a reverence thing in that we're a diurnal species. And I'm not so sure that we fear the dark. I think we've been taught to fear the dark. Mm. And I think socially, we, we think there, there's more crime at night or different kinds of crime that we should be, um, uh, that we need to be concerned about. But how do we dis dispel this fear? Because the reason we have so much light pollution is because of this safety presupposition that more light more light pollution equals more safety which i'm not sure is true no i mean because they've done studies haven't they and shown that you know this if with all this light pollution there are more shadowy areas and you know shady shady characters could hide in the shadowy areas um yeah i, I think like you say i think we have been conditioned to fear the dark mm. and you know but we're you know I mean, we're part of nature, aren't we? And I find, I mean, I'm really lucky. I live out in the sticks, you know, I'm about mm. two miles out in the sticks. It's not in the sticks compared to parts of Canada, um, but I'm two miles outside of town. Um, there's not a great deal of light pollution where I am. The stars look absolutely fantastic. And for me, there's something really amazing about going outside, just standing in the garden barefoot and staring up at, you know, the universe. It's just mm -hmm. incredible. And I think that if more of us went out and did that, we would probably feel a bit more connected to everything and maybe feel less fearful of, of the dark and of the night. I actually agree with you wholeheartedly. I think that, and, and while I have great respect for astronomers and what they do, I, I don't have a natural interest in astronomy. I, I've been to, you know, uh, you know, look through telescopes. There's the moons of Jupiter. Oh, those two white dots there? Yeah, that's the moons of Jupiter. Okay, great. I'll see you in 15 years. Like, it doesn't get me excited. And I, I don't say that pithily. Or I understand that people are very interested in that. But I think, you know, most people, if this movement takes off, it's going to be from what you just said, which is, you know, connecting themselves to the universe, f having a dose of awe and feeling that, you know, hey, what is this all about? Why am I here? These kinds of conversations. There's a reason why, you know, we sacrificed lambs and sent burnt smoke up to heaven because at night we saw this beautiful stars right so yeah I, I agree we have to dispel the fear and replace it with reverence or something um mm. you know it, it, they're very similar reverence and fear is just the difference in and how we react to them um indicator species why is the moth like what does it indicate it's an indicator it's a canary in the coal mine as you said what are, what are they indicating in their decline well they are because in the uk particular particularly they're so well studied. They can be used as like a surrogate species for less attractive and less well studied species and groups. So like, you know, for spiders, for example, beetles. So and what moths are telling us, you know, moths are in the on the decline in the UK. I mean, the Atlas of Britain and Ireland's larger moths, which we published in 2019, showed that moths have declined by 32 percent in their distribution. So that's where they're found in, in, in um, the UK since 19, uh, since when was it? Since the 1970s. So 
they're on the decline in terms of where, where they're found, which indicates that other lots of other less well-studied groups will also be in decline in terms of distribution where they're found and also in terms of numbers. I mean, again, we're really lucky over here that we've got these, you know, we've got these fantastic data sets. We've got the Rothamsted Insect Survey network of light traps across the UK. And those traps monitor... Um, they monitor moth abundance every night um, and have done since nine, the late 1960s. And they show that the actual abundance of moths, 41% um, of moth species are declining in abundance. And also total moth abundance, so the total number of moths that, that are out there, has declined by a third, again, since the mm. late 1970s. So it's, mm. it's quite worrying. You know, it's very worrying. And to think that these things could be happening to other creatures and also the knock-on effects of those things. So in the UK, again, you know, birds, birds are declining. Most creatures are declining, to be honest, in, in the UK. Um, you know, that we've got the most well-studied but well studied for flora and fauna <laughs> you know, and it's the most sure. we're probably one of the most depleted and, countries and the, on the longest planet. history the longest history of yeah. studying them probably in the modern age um how does Absolutely. light pollution how does light pollution um harm moths and is it the number one harm they're facing well like a lot of um lot of things that are declining the main the main drivers of of declines population declines distribution declines is, is habitat loss so that can be direct destruction of the habitat by you know digging up we've lost something like 98 percent of our wildflower meadows in the uk since since the second world war and the dig for victory campaign so there's direct destruction of habitats through agri, you know agricultural intensification development um, there's also things like abandonment of land. So land once upon a time would have been managed for, you know, would have been grazed by cattle or sheep. But due to, um, you know, market pressures, it's no longer financially viable for farmers to graze the land. So the land is abandoned. So the grass grows. The habitat's no longer suitable for the creatures that live in it. So there's that. Um, and then the other real biggie um, and there's also, you know, agricultural intensification, pesticide use, herbicide use, unfavourable land management. So we've got a real trend over here for keeping our hedgerows nice and neat and tidy um, mm. and everything neat and tidy, really. And none of that's very beneficial for, for our wildlife. And, um, and then perhaps the other big driver. Um, for most biodiversity change is is climate change and you know we can see with moths that and also with butterflies that climate change is affecting where species are found so if you're a moth that likes to live in cool is cool adapted so you live in northern england say or scotland and you found in cooler climates or at higher altitudes as our climate changes and warms those species are moving further north and they're also moving higher uphill you know further uphill to, to higher elevations but what happens when you get to the north they get to the north coast of scotland or they get up to the top of the mountain well there's nowhere else to go so you know so climate change is driving that as well although some species are doing really well as a result of climate change and they are spreading northwards because the mm. climate is more suitable um, but coupled with that you've got things like um, again this you know available habitat habitat that's available so a moth or a butterfly or any other creature yes it can move further northwards and exploit this warmer temperature but if the habitat that that creature needs and relies on isn't available in that sort of expansion zone 
then they can't again they, they can't go anywhere so their 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 sort of distribution in you know distribution isn't in isn't increasing because of this problem with not having anywhere to go does that does that it make does sense? but the, it does the light pollution fall into the habitat loss category so i would say that the habitat the the yeah well it's kind of another there's a whole sort of toxic chem you know a toxic potent toxic cocktail really of drivers <laughs> and you know it's like if you went to the pub on a friday night and stuck to one drink you know you probably feel a bit rough the next day but I'm not sure. too bad but if you're having a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of something else then in trouble. you know you're in trouble and i think that's what's happening with the moth so and light pollution is a knock-on effect of um of urbanization as well you know so so we're developing more and more there's more and more urban centers urban sprawl um, much more countryside being developed and as a knock-on effect you've got all that artificial light at night you know associated with that and you know so although the impact of light pollution isn't massive on you know and there are these other big drivers it is another you know it's another sort of additional factor really and it can affect that well they've done lots of research and they found that um Artificial light at night affects pheromone production in female cabbage moths. Um, so that will have knock-on effects with regard to how, you know, how attractive she is to the males. If she's not producing enough pheromones or the pheromone blend isn't quite right, then the males aren't going to find her. So there's hmm. reduced you know, reduced, reduced, um, you know, uh, reproduction, um, sperm production in some male moths has been found to be affected, um, through by light pollution as well. So again, mm. you've got, you know, sterile males effectively and, um, and also the mating behavior is disturbed under artificial light as well. Some moths say, you know, they, they don't want, they don't want the lights on. <laughs> We know when mm. they're getting it on, you know. So, well, I so don't there's blame all them. sorts. Of, Can't blame no. for that. <laughs> so there's all sorts of things, really. Um, and yeah, and cat caterpillar development, it can be in uh, caterpillar development can be affected as well, but by artificial light at night. And this young, young, brilliant, bright spark guy, um, a chap called Douglas Boys. Um, sadly, he's no longer with us, but he was doing his PhD and he's done some fantastic, did some fantastic work looking at the number of caterpillars in areas where you've got streetlights compared to equivalent areas where there are not any streetlights. Mm. And I've got the figures here. And what he found is that the number of caterpillars under streetlights in dark areas in grass verges well you know that yeah in, in in lit areas the number of caterpillars was reduced by a third compared mm. to areas without street lights mm. and that was looking at the the um sodium lights as well mm -hmm. which obviously sure. emit the you know a different wavelength of light sure it's been a massive move over here to shift towards LED lighting because yep. it's more environmentally, you know, it's less less energy energy um, demanding. But what but, Douglas but, found, but, yeah, what yeah. Douglas found under these LED lights is that actually there were forty three percent fewer caterpillars under LED lights compared to the dark areas. Yeah, the the LED. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, so I'm in the lighting industry. Um, I didn't tell you that, but yeah. um, outside my office here is a lighting distribution company, and uh, I work in the business every every single day. And my, uh, you know, my association um, has been pushing for darkness restoration and night preservation for about three years now. And what we what we've noticed is that you know uh, everything was sacrificed to the altar of lumens per watt, and you know, and, you know, no one can just, it's not possible to dispute the, the societal benefits of energy efficiency and nobody's doing that. You know, we're not saying that energy efficiency is bad and we should have high pressure sodium lights, but we need to be very careful when we lock onto one particular metric mm. and just drive towards that. And I find that that's the problem in the climate change science. They don't know what to do about the problem and they, they get locked into these certain areas and they forget that darkness restoration and night preservation is actually the best place for climate change money to work right now. If you want to make a contribution, restoring night and preserving darkness is amazing for the environment. And it is also a driver of energy efficiency. And we have all the technology we need. Everything is developed now, the controls to dim, to turn off, to sensors, to uh, shielded lights, low Kelvin temperature. We have everything we need to do this. And I, I really encourage any environmentalists listening to this to adopt light pollution as part of an as a major environmental problem that we can solve right now, which will contribute to all of these other problems. Um, tell me a little bit about, you said that the, the, the moths are like a signal species. I think light pollution is also a signal of something as well. It seems to follow us wherever we go and it's getting worse. Um, do you guys track light pollution in the UK with respect to these rural areas? Is there any studies on that right now that are showing the increases in light pollution um, or anything like that? I'm not entirely sure um, specifically with the UK, but I am aware that, that the um, that artificial light at night is increasing by something like 2% per year. So, and Ruskin Hartley from the IDA said 10%. The International wow. Dark Sky Association wow. or Dark Skies wow. International, their new name, um, great organization. Um, they, uh, I heard him interviewed. He said it's going at ten percent a year since two thousand and fifteen or something. Anyway, I'm not. That's not exact, but it was ten percent was the number. Yeah. And um, yeah. that's a big number, actually. It is a big number, um, and you know, and like you say, when you can effectively <laughs> solve a lot of the problems of light pollution, literally by pushing a button mm. i mean wouldn't it be great if we could solve all of the world's environmental problems at the push of a button mm. you know and we've got the option there you know the other you know it was interesting that i don't know how it came about but your thoughts on this you know humans could go you know during the the the, the pandemic that um when there was the, the lockdowns and, and it was a terrible time i don't care what your opinion is on all that sort of stuff i mean we don't want to that's not what this show is about whether you know, what lockdowns are good or bad, but there was a time when, you know, kind of, we went back to being a diurnal species, actually, you know, it, there wasn't yeah. so much action at night. And I'm wondering, you know, people say, well, you know, what do we learn from it? One of the things that I, I take away in this movement is that maybe we could go back to, to not being as active at night. Obviously we need hospitals and emergency stuff, but you know, I don't know if we need Walmart at two in the morning, you know what I'm saying? Um, so is that even a possible solution to contribute to the problem is that, hey, we actually only work during the day now in general occupations. We don't do, we don't go out at night. Is that even possible? I don't know. 
Well, I don't know either, but I mean, I, I don't know. It's, I think that life, life has speeded up, hasn't it, for humans? Mm-hmm. You know, there's not you, you can you can go you can go out and you can consume you can consume something anything at virtually any time of day mm-hmm. in you know in the developed world especially mm-hmm. you know you can if you want it you can just have it just just like that pretty mm-hmm. much and and i think that, that 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 constant wanting and consumption and that constantly needing to be busy thing you know is mm. is really detrimental to human society and also i think to our mental health as well to be constantly mm. being busy and yeah, and, and the mo- modern technology with our phones. I mean, this is great. You know, you and I are having this conversation, you know, thousands of miles apart, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, but we, we, we stay up till late gazing at our phones, you know, and all of that, all that. We, we, it's almost like we've constantly got to be on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we're not constantly on the go, then, you know, we're, we're kind of looked at as like weirdos. <laughs> Well, you mentioned some stats about the moths, right? Um, hormonal problems, uh, you know, lower sperm counts in the male moths, fertility problems. You know, I wonder to myself, you know, if the, you hear about these same things with humans. I mean, you hear, I mean, you know, you, you, you know, you could, you, you, all the time I hear stuff about fertility issues and sperm counts in men going down from the 1970s or whatever. And I'm wondering if, if, you know, the lifestyle, which I believe light pollution is the number one signal of. You talked about the signal species, right? I think light pollution is a signal of overconsumption. It's a con- signal of, um, what is that phrase, uh, um, conspicuous consumption, you know, where, mm. y- you know, Uber eats and <laughs> all this kind of thing to your door. And, <laughs> and I mean, you can, you can strike sparks on, in London, New York, and Toronto any day of the week at any time. You can get there's action going on in those cities. And I like that personally. Yep. But, you know, uh, so this idea of, of light as a signal, uh, light pollution as a signal. Um, I want to ask you, I'm changing gears here. What is, tell me about the Atlas, um, how much work was it to produce an atlas of of the and and is it actually a literal map, a book with maps it, of where the moths? Oh, well, here we are. Here it is. This is it, <laughs> and um, it's quite. You can see it's quite a weighty tome. It's, it's about five hundred pages. Yeah, um, it's got um, over eight hundred species in it. Eight hundred ninety three species, I think. Um, and it took <clears throat> it took an awful lot of time. <clears throat> so you've got people. Out in the world, out in out in the UK, they've been recording and counting moths for a long, long time, over about 300 years, 300 years altogether, and all of their sightings are collated locally by um, people that are called county moth recorders. They're local experts who gather and collate the data. They check the data for accuracy, and then they send it to Butterfly Conservation for the National Moth Recording Scheme. So we decided we wanted to produce this atlas because we had something like 20, well, there's 26 million moth records in this, in this book. Wow. And we, yeah, we collaborated with um, uh, Moths Ireland, who are the um, moth recording scheme for the island of Ireland. And um, so we gathered all this data. It took us, we started into, when did we start? I think it took us about three or four years to, to pull it all together. It took us 18 months to check the records and, um, you know, check, check for dodgy dots because obviously county moth recorders as well, they're, they're still human and they may make mistakes. And we worked out 
the error rate, it was something like 0.08% wow. error. So so very wow. few errors yeah. altogether. But when you're dealing with 25.6 million records, that's still quite a lot of records to check. So sure. yeah, it took an awful lot of time. Um, it's a massive collaboration between, you know, it's, it's basically the result of every single individual moth recorder out there from the dawn of time till till now. And and the way I look at it, it's like our lives, all of our lives are in here. And there would have been people recording moths like a long, long time ago. And did they realise that that action of writing down those moth species that they saw mm. was going to contribute to something like this? You know, it's mm. like a massive collective, you know, the collective has created something fabulous, which is which is this. And I and inside it you've got all these all the larger moth species of the UK, or Britain and Ireland, sorry. And um and there's a little photograph of each species. We've got distribution trends. So where these moths are found, you know, are they increasing their distribution and spreading out? Are they retracting their distribution? So getting more and more localized. Um, we've got abundance trends in there. We've got distribution maps. We've got phenology charts as well. We found that um, an awful lot of moths, I can't remember the, the exact figure, um, there's an awful lot of moth species that are flying earlier now than they did in the 1970s. Um, so that obviously that can have knock on effects for, um, you know, um, f f their, their phenology is changing. But is the phenology of their, say, their host plant changing or is there a mismatch in, in host plant availability and, and caterpillar, you know, caterpillar uh, presence or adult moth presence? Um, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's uh, it really is. It's it's a. Uh, it's a little treasure trove, really, and you can go to this book. And I've, you know, I've worked for butterfly conservation for about sixteen years, and I think, oh, what's happening with that moth? And now I've got somewhere I can go, and I'm like, right, ah, oh, I can see it's only found in this bit of the country, or it's only found here, and it's going up, or it's going down, and you know, oh, and it's flying earlier than it was in the seventies, or you know, so um, yeah, so it's hmm. it's, I'm really proud of it actually. <laughs> it's really great. I can tell. So, and, and and yeah. you know what's interesting is that I'm you know I think all the contributors to your work are volunteers is that correct Absolutely they are all wow. volunteers and that is yeah and well, that I'll again, have to raise a toast to them at some point come on that's that's absolutely. wonderful Absolutely well cheers cheers, yeah, cheers. because without yeah. without them you know butterfly conservation without our fantastic volunteers butterfly conservation would not be able to achieve what it achieves you know we wouldn't mm. have these amazing data sets that inform you know policy um we produce state of reports that we you know that we present to the government you know we've got government the but butterfly trends are used um as government indicators as well mm. you know and all of our outreach work and not to mention the conservation work on the ground if you don't know where something occurs mm -hmm. you can't save it so um yeah, so yeah, massive big up to all of our volunteers, and you know we, we really couldn't do. And I can't remember that they they contribute something like several million pounds worth of, you know, volunteer time to us every year. You know, with them, you know, counting and measuring butterflies or going out and doing active conservation work. You know, burning burning scrub, cutting down, you know, cutting down scrub, whatever, planting planting host plants. So yeah, they are absolutely amazing.
The you know it's interesting that uh, I feel and I'm sad about this, but it feels like that effective volunteerism is something that is not part of the new generation. It doesn't mm. seem you know like in in Canada you go to the Rotary Club or the Lions Club, or you go to these organizations like the Butterfly. It's a lot of it's a lot of um, baby boomers that even in the, my our association that financially supports this show, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. There seems to be a reticence of the younger generation to volunteer. Maybe they're too busy. Maybe they're distracted. I, I don't know what it is, but effective volunteerism seems to be becoming a relic of an older generation. And am I, is that my observation the same for your volunteers with the butterfly conservation? They're older people? It's exactly the same for our volunteers. I mean, the demographic you know the demographic basically particularly with the you know our, our county moth recorders and our county butterfly recorders is they are older older men sort of 65 plus um yeah 65 plus retired and, and they're, they're mainly men um in terms of our wider sort of membership and our our, our, our volunteers there are a lot more a lot of women um a lot more women getting involved and getting on board um, but in terms of the younger generation, you know, we do, I can't remember exactly what the figures are, but we have got very, very few gen, um, volunteers under the age of 30, mm. you know, volunteering with us. So that's something that we are trying very actively to, um, you know, to change. So we are trying to appeal to um, the younger generation to get them interested in butterflies and moths and volunteering and also, you know, also ethnic minorities as well. And, mm. you know, other other marginalized, you know, groups in society. So, look, you know, these are the opportunities, you know, come on, join us. You'll have a great time. You'll meet some fantastic sure. people, like-minded people. Sure. Um, but yeah, and you know, why don't they volunteer? I think, I think you're right. I think maybe there is, it's, it's the time and lack of lack of time and you know oh, well plus you've got your you know you've got all your social media you know things to update haven't you <laughs> so <laughs> I, I i it's uh, you know it, i have trouble um you know with uh there seems to be um you know i in 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 uh in, in this is only my opinion there seems to be in the discourse some a few a few issues which dominate everyone's life and the specifics once there's great great um meaning to get down to the level of moth counting like it, it the, and and people seem to be stuck at this higher level of climate change protest or you know different kinds of protests which are very big issues that have are very difficult to solve and there's no real meaningful contribution other than protest you know and I think it, it, people need to be encouraged to get down to a much more specific level with something where you can make a contribution, actually, to the change that you're looking for. And yeah. I think counting moths is one of those examples where you could be absorbed by that and, you know, make a, a nice hobby for your, you know, on, on your weekends and meet new people. And so, yeah, I, I would encourage people that are of that that age to get involved and it's by even the national association of innovative line distributors we have trouble with younger generation people why should i join an association what's my payback it's like actually it's the other way around what's our payback of having you as a member <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm. well you're not looking yeah. at this correctly yeah. it's your place yeah. to give back this is where you come to give back to the industry that has has paid you so much money and 
where you've earned a living for your family. And so you give back to that or you give 2% of your time to volunteer for, you know, light pollution committee or, you know, something like that. And you give back and it's an opportunity for you to do that. I don't think we communicate that the correct way. Um, you know, our people don't seem to feel it the right, the way they used to. And so I, we have to reestablish mm. that. We have to change the image of volunteerism. It's not something for, for older people. It's, it's for everybody to contribute. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm, and I'm a firm believer with the, you know, with the state of nature and the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis and all of that. I mean, you know, the, the whole world is in crisis at the moment, isn't it? Let's face it. And, but if and everything's a crisis, nothing is a crisis, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, you know what I mean? It just seems like everything yeah. is, you know, you know, I mean, what happened to the, I mean, I'm going way off topic here. Okay. But what happened to the Chinese balloons? Remember the Chinese balloons? that were flying over Canada, yeah. the United States. That was a huge yeah. panic. Everyone was focused yeah. on that for three weeks. What's with these Chinese balloons? Da, da, da. And now it's gone. Yeah. Like what happened yeah. to the balloons? I thought there was balloons everywhere. I thought they were spying on us. But these distractions, you know, the it's, it, you know, it, it's, and I, I believe, Dr. Randall, that light pollution is a symbol of that. You know, it's a symbol of that yeah. distraction or that chaos or the, over stimulation or something whether the light pollution is coming from your device or whether it's coming from the street light or the sign or or whatever we're 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 too distracted we can't we can't see right and so yeah i think yeah i think you're right and that and it is it's about that's that's the one thing that i kind of learned or discovered in the lockdowns and everything that we had over here during the covid thing was that it's actually the simple things in life that really matter and yeah, it's the simple things in life and, and having that, like you say, that, that connection, that connection to something, be that staring up at the stars at night or running a moth trap in your garden or just observe, listening to the bird song in your garden or just noticing that connecting with nature because we're so, as a species, we are so divorced from nature. Mm -hmm. And I think what we forget is that we are part of nature and we effectively mm -hmm. and there'll be a lot of people that won't like this at all but we are effectively another animal that inhabit inhabits the planet that's all we are is another animal and i think we're the only animal on the planet that is that is hell-bent on, on on destroying its resource base i think we're psychologically yeah. divorced but we're not divorced we're part of nature there's no escaping yeah. it you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's, and we're yeah. feeling, just yeah. like the moths, um, people are feeling yeah. the effects of this. And light pollution is, again, like I said, a symbol, a great symbol of yeah. the conspicuous, the overconsumption and the constant need to, to move and, and this sort of thing. Mm. But, you know, I, I, this is a solvable problem, um, this light pollution thing. And, you know, I'd yeah. like to, you know, encourage everybody to, to, to get involved in this movement. Dr. Randall, do you have any, we're coming up on 40 minutes, do you have any final thoughts that maybe I missed or I didn't, I didn't ask you about or anything for the restoring dark listeners, listeners before we sign off. Um, I just think that people, you know, if, if people are interested in nature or moths or whatever, just get out there and do it. Mm. Um, just connect with nature, marvel at the beauty and the wonder of, of it all. And, mm -hmm. and in, in, um, Canada, you guys, there's a guy called, um, Joe Bowden. Um, he's a, I'm going to name check him. He's an entomologist with the Canadian forest service. Mm -hmm. And, um, and he's been setting up what they call these moth walls. 
in the in the national parks in the um in Atlantic Canada. So you've got in a national park, you'll have a, a white a whiteboard with a light on it, and people can go along and take photographs, and then you know send the photographs sure. up, photographs off, and AI will identify them for them. So so Joe's trying to do this in in Canada to again to to get people interested in in, in moths and in in nature, and yeah, and I just think that's that's what we need to do more of is get in touch with get in touch with nature what's the real things in life not the fakery you know well the you know real I, was, stuff. I was talking to my daughter she likes to play this video game i can't remember what it's called or whatever and and it, you know listen it's unfortunate but the smartest people in the world the most talented people in the world work in silicon valley for companies that create addictions social media and video game companies mm. it's actually quite sad those are our, our best resources, our best humans. They make Twitter, they make video games, they make these addictive things that add zero productivity to our lives and our economy. It's sad. But I was talking to my daughter and I said, can you tell me in the last three years your best moment playing video games? And she couldn't remember any particular moment. No. And I said, okay, well, tell me, tell me about your best moment going to the cottage. She go, I got hundreds. I said, tell me your best one up to the cottage. She said, well, that time, you know, during COVID when you took me and my friends to the cottage and you made us close our eyes and you took us out on the dock and we laid down and then you pulled the, the, uh, I had a mask over their eyes and the stars were all in front of us at like, boom, the, they laid down on the dock and I, I took their, their masks off. I walked them down, laid them down, laid down, laid down, laid down. And I pulled their mask off. And I was like, wow, holy mackerel. It was a beautiful yeah. night full of stars. And they, and she totally yeah. remembers that. She'll never forget yeah. that moment. And she can't remember anything right. she did on video games. And so these yeah. experiences in nature are so impactful on people, Dr. Randall. And we need to get back to them and have them more often um, in our lives. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. Folks, Definitely. Yeah. So we've made it to the end. Another 40-minute show here, folks, on The Restoring Darkness. And I appreciate all the, the people out there that watch and listen to this. Subscribe to our stuff. And this show is going to be entering a new format. So this is uh, Dr. Randall. You were the last guest of the old format. We're moving to a new format mm. coming up um, in a couple of weeks. I don't know, Scott, what do you think? A week or two? Something like that. He's waving his hand at me like this for people that are listening. He's going <laughs> like this. But yeah, we're going to be changing this up and, and advancing it. So we thank you for joining us and look forward to our new show. Dr. Randall can be found at butterflyconservation.org, bigbutterflycount.org. And on Twitter, she's the moth underscore lady, moth lady. So check her out. And the rest of her links are on the Restoring Darkness website. For now, I'm going to say bye. Thanks for listening and watching. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.